This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 1037 The Game's one and only exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in however you're doing, so be it through 1037thegame.com, the free 1037 The Game mobile app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Audio Mac, and any other way you consume your favorite podcast. It was a busy week in the sport of professional wrestling, sports entertainment, whatever you want to call it. So let's waste a little time and get into what's causing all this with the three count, we start off with the WWE settling out of court with Saudi Arabia. The WWE found themselves in a class action lawsuit from the city of Warren, Michigan's police and fire retirement system. And this lawsuit for the police and firefighters pension fund was due to alleged misconduct concerning the WWE's dealings with Saudi Arabia. And that has now been settled. According to Uncle Dave on Twitter, he mentioned that there are multiple lawsuits and at once and WWE has since settled all those out of court. The other big thing going on with the WWE is they're moving the Thunderdome to the old Thunderdome. Back when the Tampa Bay Lightning opened up their season, opened up their franchise, their opening year was inside Tropicana Field. They called it the Thunderdome. But the Thunderdome is making its move from Tampa Bay to St. Petersburg, Tropicana Field, the absolute dump of all ballparks. I went there back in 2008. This was the Tampa Bay Rays World Series run, so just kind of bear with me here. I'm going to talk a little sports for a second before I get back into the conversation about the Thunderdome moving over to the Trop. The Trop is the absolute, like, anus of baseball stadiums and ballparks, period, and stadiums, bottom line. It is one of the absolute worst for a lot of different reasons. One is because of the fact that they have it, like, curved. It's like a weird angle to where if you're sitting behind the backstop, you have foul balls coming at you every like couple seconds. And hell, I remember seeing one foul ball almost hit a girl. And it's just a mess of a stadium and more power to them because it makes sense because of the fact that the Orlando Magic are going to be taking over that venue. I believe an ECAHL team as well is going to be taking over that venue. So they have to move. This is perfect. It's be starting on December 11th. On the episode of Friday Night SmackDown, TLC is going to be live from Tropicana Field inside the Thunderdome. But what's interesting is, due to the size of the facility, which holds nearly 43,000 fans for baseball, and the fact that it's going to be plenty of distance away from the actual in-ring action, and St. Petersburg was already kind of pegged as the venue for the Royal Rumble, so it works out in a sense, there's been a lot of speculation on whether WWE would allow spectators into the arena. There's also been talk of WWE replicating that model used by NXT shows at the Capitol Wrestling Center where groups of fans are being tested beforehand and stationed in individual pods. I don't necessarily know if that's going to be able to be done, especially considering the fact that, you know, we're in the middle of another outbreak, especially just nationwide. We're in the middle of that third wave. I know here in Louisiana, we kind of are getting hit hard right now with that one. But there's been speculation about that, and I'd be interested to see if that's actually going to be where they go. But according to the WWE, they ruled out the possibility of spectators, even in limited quantities, being allowed to enter the Trop. In their press release, they wrote, Raw, SmackDown, and pay-per-view programming will produce at Tropicana Field on close, se- close sets, almost like close seats, with only essential personnel in attendance. Going back to Papa Dave, 
He mentioned that Tropicana Field is expected to be the home until at least March whenever the Tampa Bay Rays do return to action. Now it makes you wonder, what are they going to do around WrestleMania season? Are they going to try and get in a bunch of shows pre-taped? Of course, if things don't turn around, what do they do after that? Do they go back to the performance center? Because the Thunderdome is not going to be available with the Orlando Magic. You're going to have to work around their schedule to get that thing up and running. And who knows what's going to happen. I mean, I don't think the Magic are going to make the playoffs in 2021. So once you get into the months of like April and May, then there's a possibility where that venue gets opened up again. But you're going to be ramping up around WrestleMania season. Their goal is to have it inside Raymond James Stadium. Hopefully there is kind of that, that plan B or plan C that's there in case you're able to get to, like let's say, March and you get closer to spring training and the regular season starting up for MLB. If that does indeed start in the month of April, I'm sure the WB is hoping for a strike. That way they can still use that venue. But this is, again, according to Meltzer, saying that the Royal Rumble is expected to be held at Tropicana Field, and the current plan is also to hold WrestleMania 37 in Raymond James Stadium, the home of the Bucks and the home of the Super Bowl this year. And all depends on things completely out of hands, of everyone's hands, in relation to COVID-19. And the final bit of news before we get into Survivor Series 2020 is the news about Renee Young or Renee Paquette now, she's using her actual government name now, and John Moxley are expecting children. Congratulations to them. They announced it on AEW Dynamite, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But it's really cool, the fact that that was the way they announced it. But it's nowhere near as awesome as the way Renee broke the news to somebody she didn't intend to break it to, and that was former SmackDown Women's Champion Bailey, And she actually accidentally texted Bailey the news whenever she was intending to text John. Which is absolutely hysterical to me. I find that amazing sometimes. You just accidentally text somebody the news and everybody starts to find out. But now let's get into Survivor Series 2020. And it was a really good show. I I enjoyed it. I think a lot of people did enjoy it as well on our Twitter page. At Cajun Strong Style. C-A-J-N Strong Style. Because you can't have the full name of Cajun. Go figure. At least in that sense. But everybody who voted in the poll... As of right now, the time of this taping, 100% thumbs up, and the match tonight was Drew versus Roman. I've got some pointed thoughts about that, but I'll talk about it in a little bit because there's a lot of reasons why that's not necessarily my favorite match tonight. It's good, but it's not the best. But the kickoff show was fun. The way they had the Undertaker's tribute video, which had Metallica, really cool stuff there. Hopefully people weren't Twitch streaming, and then they have Metallica play, and then they get a DMCA for that. Because you know Twitch loves them DMCAs. The only other notable thing outside the dual branded Battle Royal, which I'll get to in a second, is the Gobbledygooker won the 24-7 title. This was, hands down, one of the best things I have seen in a while from WWE. It's like, why not? It's already a comedy title at this point, so why not go full hog? And this was an example of, quote-unquote, going full hog and just giving the gobbledygooker a moment in the sun. Now, I'm wondering who was behind the gobbledygooker mask, which later on wound up going all the way back to R-Truth for the bajillion time. But I absolutely love the fact that they continue to hotshot it around and, and do all these different gimmicks to make sure that people can get the point across. And it, it's just a really fun time if you're a WWE fan and you love what's going on with the company. And I again, I just love the way they booked out that segment with the gobbledygooker winning the title from our truth and then later in the night, the little bird seed gimmick. It was just really mu- it, like 
again, if you don't take wrestling quite as seriously, especially when it comes to the 24-7 title, you realize that was pretty damn cool. And that was one hell of a way to kind of reference the Goblin Cooker, who also debuted 30 years ago yesterday. I'm sure The Undertaker still to this day is like, thank goodness I wasn't the Eggman, because the Eggman just was there and then disappeared off the face of the earth. I wonder who was behind the Gooker mask. I haven't seen anything lately. Who was in the costume? Because it makes you wonder, who would they have put in that spot in terms of like a developmental guy or whatever? Because, I mean, I don't think Hector Guerrero was going to do that. But anyways, we get to the dual-branded Battle Royal, which honestly was very, like, weird. The fact that they did a dual-branded Battle Royal and kind of announced it with no hype on Friday, it made me frustrated and made me realize, again, why I stopped doing the pick episodes. Because it's damn near possible to kind of predict how the final card is going to look. We kind of ran into that issue back in the NXT TakeOver In Your House predictions episode. Right after we taped it, another match got announced, and then we're kind of like, what the hell are we doing? But I loved this dual-branded Battle Royal. It was fine for what it was. And there were some really cool spots in this. I mean, they, but it was awesome the fact that they had like several mid carders and they had guys like the Miz, Ray Mysterio, Dominic Mysterio, and Murphy all involved in to where it wasn't like, oh, hey, it's just a bunch of like mid card guys you don't care about. You had people in there that you actually did care about. What was funny to me was Morrison got dumped out first. And here's just a couple random observations I had throughout. That was one of them where Morrison got dumped out early, which is a big surprise in the way everything worked out was really cool. Like the final moments with with him, uh, Dominic Mysterio and the Miz were really awesome. But it was just an overall kind of like eh battle royal. It was it was not necessarily the best. Another thing that kind of threw me off was Ziggler wearing a hat during the match. And I have no idea in why he was wearing a hat. He never wears a hat in the WWE ring. He just never freaking <laughs> wins. He never like wears a hat. And it's like, why were you wearing a hat and why did you like have it come off, and then you put it back on like 10 seconds later. It was it was mind-boggling to me, and I'm still wondering what all is going to be going on with the Mysterios now that they're all together, they're all united after the whole Seth Rollins angle, which we'll talk about Seth in just a couple minutes. But Miz wound up winning the Battle Royal by last eliminating Dominic Mysterio, and it was just a really cool like final moments of the contest, and the Miz gets the win. And Raw gets up one nothing early on, which depends how you kind of look at it. Because every year, every year or so, they kind of there's a debate about whether or not they count the pre-show. It, of course, all depends on how you're working it. But people want to talk about 2017 being the year whenever SmackDown got absolutely trounced by Raw, and they didn't count the pre-show. Honestly, they could have counted the pre-show. It didn't really matter. This one, I think they will wind up counting, but we'll get to that later. His dual branded battle royal was fun, and then we get right into the main card, and it was a one heck of a way to start off the show. The men's Survivor Series match with Team Raw taking on Team SmackDown, and this was a surprisingly decent match, but it really took a while to get started. You want to see them all kind of get in, get their little bits in, but once you get to about the final like ten minutes or so, that's when things start ramping up. But we'll get to that in uh, get to the final moments in a little bit. Rollins. It's eliminated first, and it was interesting. And maybe this is a way to write him off because obviously Becky Lynch is about to have their first child together. So more likely than not, you have 
Seth Rollins sacrificing himself, quote unquote, for the greater good. Sheamus is the bro kick and the three count, and it's just immediate elimination for Rollins. He starts rolling around, rolling out of the ring, and starts rolling like off of camera, and it was really cool. And I love the fact that they did that because, again, it's a perfect way to potentially just, like, the way it was, it looked like potentially a write-off for Seth Rollins, who definitely needed to spend some time off and obviously deal with his pregnant wife, who's about to have their first child, I believe, next month, from what I've been able to kind of surmise on the interwebs. Then you see them step out. Kevin Owens tries to get the team on the same page and then gets eliminated not long after that. After going on a stunner rampage, which was awesome. I love the fact like you have Kevin Owens just hitting stunners on everybody. He was hitting them on Keith Lee, Braun. I mean, he was hitting them and hitting them hard. Sheamus. The only one he didn't hit it on was AJ Styles, but that was because AJ wound up getting out of the rain and coming back, hitting the phenomenal forearm, and just absolutely crushing him with that. AJ Styles eliminates Kevin Owens. Then King Corbin... I'm still like, why have they just gone back to Baron Corbin? It's like, you can just revert back to that. It's been a year. Get it together. He winds up getting eliminated not long after that. He puts together a really good effort, hits the end of days, it gets broken up, which, by the way, the end of days still hasn't been kicked out of outside of, obviously, interruptions. I don't count that. But then Matt Riddle gets the elimination, pinning him with after, I'm going to call it the Centon Bomb. It didn't look like the Swanton. I'm just going to call it the Centon Bomb. Otis eliminated, but he put together a really great effort. He was really the guy that I feel like they, they showcased a lot here in this match, but this was him like getting the human highlight reel type stuff and just throwing together like these incredible like like feats of strength. Because again, you look at the raw roster of guys, it was absolutely positively a bunch of big meaty dudes. I mean you had Braun, you had Sheamus, you had Keith Lee. Like, it was definitely a stack roster against the smaller, relatively speaking, SmackDown guys, and Otis gets eliminated. He really cleaned house throughout that match, but Braun wound up getting the win and eliminating Otis after a power slam. But I'll give credit to Otis. He wound up putting together a really great offensive performance against him. The power slam on Braun was really cool. And then the fact that they did a – I just was blown away at the like way they almost – he hit the Caterpillar that went up on the top rope. And then interference came about, and Raw gets the win and eliminates him. It's down to Jey Uso. It is five versus one, and Jey Uso puts together a phenomenal performance. I wish he had gotten like a couple eliminations. Like, why not try to eliminate you know some of those other guys? So those like kind of like I'm gonna just say it, the B plus players. Like you can get eliminate Sheamus, you eliminate Sheamus, and then maybe you eliminate Keith Lee as well. But the fact that they didn't have him eliminate anybody really made you think that they were just neutering the SmackDown roster in this match. And I did not expect to be a clean sweep, but it was. Jey Uso gets eliminated, and the clean sweep is in effect. Keith Lee hits him with the Spirit Bomb, which was really cool. And the fact he had him in like a fireman's carry into the Spirit Bomb was cool. I wish he had done the, the BBC, but I guess that's not a thing anymore. The Big Bang Collider, I wish it was, because that would have been an awesome way to end that match. With those two. Again, didn't expect it to be a clean sweep, but it was a very fun match that I felt like really kind of ramped up in the last 10 minutes and became a really entertaining one about the final five or six minutes. Yes, it was a clean sweep, but it was something I just did not expect 
and I enjoyed. Looking over the New Day Street Profits, the Raw versus SmackDown Tag Team Champs, and this was another really good match. These two put on the show from start to finish. First, you had New Day come out wearing the Gears of War 5 entrance attire, which sets up perfectly the live read for the New Day on Gears of War 5, showing off the trailer, which looked damn awesome. And I love the fact that they just wore the Gears of War entrance attire. Big E was straight up no-selling the whole like SmackDown versus Raw thing, showing up with the New Day, and then he basically walked off. That was cool. The Street Profits with their pre-match promo, talking about The Undertaker, talking about this tag team match, and putting over how important it is for them to get this win because it really establishes them as one of the up-and-coming like tag team superstars of the WWE because New Day's been running things for the last like six, seven years. Why not kind of establish, hey, we're the new guys in town and we aren't going away that easy? And that's exactly what this match was. It was start to finish, just absolute bangers. The frog splash off the... Montez Ford has like an insane like vertical leap, and it gets showcased more and more every week. And I think that's a big reason why I just enjoyed him, and I wish they were in AEW and we could get Street Profits versus Top Flight, which Top Flight is probably one of my favorite tag teams right now, the up-and-comers. But this was, without a doubt, a show-stealing show, a match, I should say. This was a show-stealer with the Doomsday Blockbuster, like, that absolutely ruled. I was not expecting the way that match ended to end the way that did. It was perfect, and the way it worked was fine. I absolutely love the way they ended this match, and I really wish that these two would book like a unification match down the road. Put these two in there, maybe at a WrestleMania, and they could put on an absolute banger of a match based on what we saw. I would love to see that be an opener potentially for a WrestleMania match down the road. If they want to unify the tag team titles, New Day versus Street Profits should be that kind of end game of it all. If you want to do it, because I don't think they're going to, but it's at least an idea that I'm kind of throwing out there. Then we get to the SmackDown versus Raw singles mid-tier titles. I should say the U.S. title versus the Intercontinental title, the man who represents multiple countries, and the guy who represents just one country, squaring off Sami Zayn versus Bobby Lashley. This was a squash match, but it wasn't surprising. I feel like, honestly, we all knew Bobby Lashley was going to win because they're continuing to build the Hurt Business as absolute killers, and what they did with this was absolutely perfect. Bobby Lashley, as expected, won with a Hurt Lock. Very quick match. And it was a new take on like a squash match. It was fun, entertaining. Sami Zayn trying to like explain why he's trying to basically get out of dealing with the hurt business because they kept running interference, as he put it, and basically saying, "Hey, like these guys are here, and it's like, why are they here? They should be ejected out of the match." I love the fact that he did did that because it's a really cool gimmick, and it made this squash match not seem nearly as bad. And it's now. It's still damaging to the rep of Sami Zayn, but it's about what you would expect because Sami Zayn is such a smaller competitor compared to a more aggressive and new like version of Bobby Lashley because that's been like the last couple of years. That's been him the last like couple of years. So then we get to the women's title match or the SmackDown versus Raw women's match and Sasha Banks versus Asuka. This absolutely ruled. This is one of my favorite matches of the night. It was just back and forth, and it 
Both of them were evenly matched. I believe it was only like a 10-minute contest, but they used every last bit of those 10 minutes like wisely. I liked a lot of the technical stuff. The arm bar attempts were really cool where they were just kind of rolling around. Asuka kept hitting code breakers out of nowhere. It felt like a really underrated match. It's probably going to get slept on. Everybody talks about Drew versus Roman. I think... And this is just me saying it. This was a match of the night for me without question. They had great chemistry, and I wish we had more time seeing these two in the squared circle together because it felt like the main event, and not, not counting the Undertaker segment, the Undertaker segment doesn't count as a match, but I believe if you had taken some time off of Roman versus Drew and given that to this main event, to this match between Sasha Banks and Asuka, you could have had a really good contender for match of the year. But I understand why they did what they did with Drew versus Roman. But maybe if you take off two or three minutes of stare-downs, that would change the conversation a lot. Then we get to the Women's Survivor Series contest. Team Raw dominated this one, and it took a while for this match to really hit full tilt for me. And the big story was Lana, because the way they've built it over the last several weeks with her getting put through the announce table and Nia Jax basically berating her every which way and so on and so forth, which honestly has been great. And if you haven't checked out the WB Chronicle on Lana, it is so damn good. It is absolutely perfect. It really made you think and root for Lana if you watched it. The way she was talking about, like, in detail about dealing with her mental health and all that. As someone who deals with a lot of that all the time, I can definitely vouch for Lana and say, hey, respect you for, like, pushing through in the midst of all this stuff. And basically, the happy ending was kind of sort of there. But the big story throughout the match, after Lana like basically got the accidental tag, or not the accidental tag, it was a blind tag, then Nia Jax told her to tag out and stand on the steps and don't do anything. Do not get in this match ever again. And it eventually turned out to be the reason why she was the sole survivor. And I was on a friend of the programs, like Kyle King's Twitch stream. We were talking about it like all throughout the match. Is Lana going to be the sole survivor? And I thought she was going to be the sole survivor. Maybe you do it in a little bit of a different way where let's say Lana gets put through a table for the 20th time and then like she somehow some way gets up after like 20 minutes of waiting and gets the final elimination for her team. Nope, that was not the case. She wins by doing absolutely nothing. It's like playing Mario Party and you see, you know, you're playing the, the I'm trying to think of the names, like the one where you basically would run into each other while you're rolling on balls. This was exactly that, and I loved it. It was absolutely hilarious, and it was just perfect. We were dying laughing at this, and it made me just think of the Sailor Moon meme where it's like, my job is done, but you didn't do anything, and then Lana just, like, you fade out. It was a really fun match. Like It just it took a while to speed up, and there was just some stuff I just was thrown off by, and I'll get to that in a second. But I feel like Bianca Belair was the star of the match. She carried like the final like 10 minutes or so. It was a 3-1 lead. The way they eliminated Shayna Baszler, keeping her strong, that was really cool. I absolutely enjoyed it. It was something I just did not catch right away. Because I was watching the stream. I was watching on the network on a Twitch stream with a friend. So I was like, I didn't necessarily see how it happened. But I'm like, oh, yeah, she was on the ropes. And she didn't break the five count, which made a lot of sense. But it was really well done in that sense. And Bianca Belair put together a phenomenal, like, 10 minutes or so of really good storytelling. But, of course, it was a double count out, and Lana was the sole survivor, which still makes me laugh. 
and the, there was a couple things that dropped the rating for me in, in my mind. I'm not going to give a star rating because I just I, I don't give out star ratings anymore. Is that they had Natalia trying to do a surfboard stretch or something like that? It just at least it looked like she was trying to set up the surfboard stretch, and it wound up like not being able to work, and then she just stomped the hell out of her, and then hit the sharpshooter for the immediate tap out on Peyton Royce. Just was not my favorite thing. And then they had, you know, <laughs> like there was also a couple things that I just, maybe it's just like something I noticed today versus stuff, stuff of the past. They had very slow, like running the rope spots. Like every time you saw a diva, a superstar run the ropes, women's superstar run the ropes, they immediately were running at it almost half speed. It was like, why are you going at half speed? It just, it means it lessens the impact of the move. It was like, what the hell is going on? But I love the double countout spot. A great way to continue the Lana Nia Jack shoot. Hopefully we get a big payoff for that. And the bully gets their comeuppance. Because I think that's where we're at in terms of the end game of this angle. Then we get to the main event. Good Lord, this is everything I wanted and more. Roman Reigns, Drew McIntyre, WWE versus Universal Championship. And this was perfect. This was the best match that I've seen from Roman in a while. It was perfect. Just two big men beating the tar out of each other. Again, it's the big meaty men slapping meat, and this was exactly what you wanted. Just two horses going at it for 20 minutes straight. It took like five minutes for you know this thing to get going, but damn, once it gets started, once you saw them really speed it up, once you saw this match speed up, it was so damn good. A lot of false finishes. Roman Reigns is going all out, hitting a Samoan drop. As like Drew was going like full speed head to him, like the way they did that Samoan drop was so damn smooth. Which table had broken? Because that probably would have ramped up the match. Because again, it's something about seeing the same spot twice, especially the first time. It looked freaking awesome. Like it's frustrating to me to see that kind of thing go down. But again, then you saw Roman Reigns hitting a spear on McIntyre through the barricade. Then we got to the infinite finishers segment of the match. The finish, Roman going for the spear. McIntyre hits the Claymore, ref bump. Roman finishes the job with the front guillotine choke. And I mentioned this on the stream with my buddy Kyle King. That this was, without a doubt, an awesome way to establish Roman as an absolute monster. And having like a, a submission hold now versus you know just the Superman punch and the spear, using the, the, the front guillotine, the front choke absolutely fits so well, and it makes you know he's got that move in the chamber ready to try and put you away once and for all. And the way the finish was really well done, really smooth, and this was, without a doubt, a great match that could have been amazing if they had cut off like five to eight minutes. I think five to eight minutes short, because this is 25 minutes. Longest match of the night, without question. They could have done a 20 to 18 minute match, and I think it would have been a hundred times better. Because sometimes to me, I guess it's just the way I think about it length versus, you know, the quality of everything that was going on in the ring matters. I feel like you can have a good 25, 30 minute match, but you've got to have plenty of action to fill that space. You had about three minutes of an opening contest of the of the segment with, you know, your boy getting it done, 
And it was just the opening few minutes of them just standing there and circling the ring. It was unnecessary. It was a little excessive. But I, I again, really wanted to put this as match of the night. But I like Sasha Asuka a lot more. And it was just the fact that it was a few minutes longer than it needed to be. I think a 20-minute match could have done well. 25, a little bit too much for my blood. Then we get to the end of the show. Undertaker's farewell, which is an awesome send-off for the legend. You had all these legends come out. Even, like, Hog and Pig, the, the Godwins, made their return for the first time since 98. All of a sudden, Hog and Pig show up. Did not expect that, and I absolutely love the fact that they returned for the first time in forever. Really cool video package with Metallica, and Taker's entrance was like 20 minutes long, I felt like. And I made a huge mistake on the stream saying that this was going to be a like three, three and a half minutes over under. Nope, you wound up having the lights go out, you had the bongs, then you had Undertaker's theme with the Tesla coils, which is really cool, and I didn't really catch that right away until like my buddy Kyle King brought it up on the stream. But really well done the way they did it. But I was also just laughing at the fact, yeah, like all the legends come out and they just stand in the ring in 2020 during a global pandemic. I understand they're all got the COVID test, but man, it made me really question like, okay, why are they all shaking hands, hugging and whatnot? It's like they were already out in the ring just, and then they disappeared after the video package. They all left. Like you could not, you could not find them. They just all left. And it's Vince McMahon after the video package. I wonder. I guess Godfather may have, you know, got got a little high before the show, and then decided, oh, I'm going to go ahead and have the munchies, go to catering, and finish off what's left in catering at like nine o'clock at night. Or maybe he went to Sizzle after the match. I don't know. After the segment, and it's Vince McMahon. All of a sudden, you see Vince McMahon. He looked like he drew on his eyebrows. A grown, like, 70-year-old man had eyebrows that looked absolutely drawn on. It was just absolutely threw me for a loop. I like the Tesla coil thing. Undertaker's final entrance was badass. Like, again, you can't not go wrong with an Undertaker entrance in 2020. But the way they did it with the whole, like, the te- actually, instead of like him going up the stairs, just have a lift. Really looked cool, the, the presentation. of Yeah, you want to realize it was a lift, but it just looked badass. And it made you really respect The Undertaker a lot more. And again, overall, great show that exceeded expectations for me. Overall, just a phenomenal Survivor Series show that could have been a lot better. I think you could have had the women's match go a little bit longer and given a little bit less time to the main event. I wish you had seen more of like maybe Undertaker tributes throughout the show. Cause that was something I, I miss with how like they build up like the retirement angle. Like remember when Rex Flair retired and Shawn Michaels retired whenever they all came out and it like they all came out and celebrated with Ric Flair. They just had a thing with triple H and Shawn Michaels hugging in the show. But throughout the show, you had like little tributes. You had like little like like footnotes in the history of Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair. Why couldn't we have done that with The Undertaker? But I love the fact that after Survivor Series, they went through it like a history book and going through like the entire history of The Undertaker over two hours, which was a really good Broken Skull Sessions. I'm not going to talk much about that. 
is there was just so much that I'm going to say. Just go watch it. It's really fun, and it really is cool. And I think I need to watch more of the Broken Skull sessions because they were just breaking down like all these different matches and breaking down like like when you're watching like people talk about like different sporting events. They're breaking down the film and breaking it and explaining like these different things. It was cool, especially having Undertaker do all this after years of keeping up kayfabe. He even said at the beginning he l- would love to keep kayfabe going, but lo and behold, that's not going to be the case in 2020. But I want to kind of wax poetic for a bit on The Undertaker. You listen to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.7 Games exclusive pro wrestling podcast. And I want to go to my top five Undertaker matches of all time. And this is going to be in no particular order. But these are my five. I'm going to go with also receiving vote first, though. I'll go with Undertaker Jeff Hardy. Ladder match from Raw 2002. That is going to be one of my favorite matches on Monday Night Raw of all time. So because of the fact it was just a really good story being told. It was the David versus Goliath story. Jeff Hardy did not want to give up one single iota. And it put Jeff Hardy over and started to make The Undertaker a babyface again after that. And he became a babyface for the, pretty much the rest of his career after that. This was a match that was a star maker for Jeff Hardy as a single star, and it really made you realize the Undertaker is just an absolute badass, and he's going to be he'll respect you if you show that heart and grit. And this was a prime example of that. Then we get to you know some of the other matches throughout his career, and I'll go with I'll just, I'll run through this real quick. The Mankind Undertaker casket match is probably one of my like the bottom of this. If I were to do a like a true ranking. But I'm just going off of five that I absolutely love. The casket match between Mankind and Undertaker was just eh. But it was a great way. uh, Buried Alive, excuse me. The Buried Alive match was a masterpiece. I'd love to put Hell in a Cell, but I feel like the Hell in a Cell match was more of an angle or a gimmick spot versus, you know, an actual match. It was great, but I feel like the Buried Alive match is a little bit better. Randy Orton versus Undertaker, Mania 21. Before 25, this was his best match ever. Randy Orton put everything into it, put his heart and soul into that match, and they really put together a great contest. Their rivalry in 2005 was phenomenal, and I feel like that was an underrated part of WWE in 2005 where it was all about John Cena and Batista becoming the top stars. Orton was becoming a true legend in his own right. Through the feud with The Undertaker. 2007 Royal Rumble, Undertaker wins it. He wins the whole kit and caboodle. I got to go with that. Some because of the way the finish of the match was with The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels squaring off. That was perfect. And a couple years later, Shawn Michaels, Undertaker, WrestleMania 25, absolutely the best main event match in WrestleMania history. Shawn Michaels, Undertaker, WrestleMania 25. And then finally, Brock Lesnar versus The Undertaker, Hell in a Cell, No Mercy, 2002. Wow. That was another match. I talked about Jeff Hardy earlier in the year. This was Brock Lesnar becoming like the megastar. He wanted getting to that point already. He was pushed straight to the moon right away. But the way they did it was absolutely perfect. The main event, Undertaker, Brock Lesnar, and it submitted Brock Lesnar as a top star then, now, forever. And this was probably my favorite Brock Lesnar match of all time in my book because it established him as an absolute monster. And the way that angle, the build-up to it was, it was uh, chef's kiss perfect. 
And you'll notice I have a theme with it. It's all like I have one of the old Undertaker and the newer Undertaker in there, a couple from the newer ones, because I'm more of like a guy that grew up watching wrestling in the late 90s onward. I'd never really watched much of the Attitude Era because I was young and my parents didn't want me to watch it. I want to start watching when I was like 10 years old. So I was able to watch starting like 99 and seeing the American Badass Undertaker. That was my Undertaker. I know everybody hates the American Badass Undertaker in a sense, but this was the perfect way to kind of change things up. And I'm going to go ahead and just say that. That was absolutely one of my favorite Undertaker gimmicks. I know everybody hates it, but my God, it is absolutely one of the best. Now let's get to AEW Dynamite from Wednesday, and this was a really good show from top to bottom. Not as much on the wrestling side of things, but a really solid one nonetheless. All started off with probably one of my favorite openers of all time, Young Bucks Top Flight. Top Flight definitely has earned a lot of like love on the internet, and I think it's deserved it. They crushed it on this one. They put on a banger of a match on Dark the week before that caught my eye. And then we got to them taking on the Young Bucks for the AEW Tag Team titles. And they just went full stop, start to finish. Top Flight just looks so crisp in the ring. The Bucks are teamed with the, B- with the V-Trigger. Really fun match. And it reminded me a lot of how Impact used to open up shows with a fast-paced X-Division match to showcase those guys and get you invested. This was the perfect way to kind of start off a top-level show. And this isn't necessarily like the top level show that they're putting together like December 2nd is going to be, but it felt pretty damn close. Then we get to, after the match, TH2 attack Top Flight from behind until the Young Bucks break it up. I'd love to see more of Angelico and Jack Evans in action, especially on AW Dynamite, because it feels like it's been forever since they've been involved. So give me those guys, because they had great stuff Lucha Underground, so I think having like a triple threat match between Top Flight, Young Bucks, and TH2 would be absolutely a banger. Maybe even make it a ladder match. I think that would be damn cool. And it probably would make for a really good match, like let's say at Revolution. It'd be probably eclipse what they did at Full Gear, what they did at Revolution last year. If you want to have tag team division mean something, this is a hell of a start. And then we get to the Inner Circle slaying Las Vegas. This was Split up into two parts. I'll just talk about all of it right now. Love the montage of them. Spend the night in Vegas. MGF constantly screwing with Sammy Guevara was hysterical. I didn't even catch him switching the cards in the, at the blackjack table until like the third or fourth time around. I'm like, wait, when did they change hands? Because I thought they just did like a fast forward or something as the night progressed. But no, this was like actually as it happened, like Sammy Guevara turned around and they switched the cards and I couldn't stop laughing. It was perfect. And then it was all accompanied by Fozzie's Drinking with Jesus, a absolutely perfect song for this. And it's great just if I get Chris Jericho, the Inner Circle montage with Chris Jericho's band's music. Kicks so much ass. And I was just really disappointed there weren't any bubbly references. Another thing that maybe popped Conan popping up out of nowhere, which was really funny him, hearing him basically say, it's like, I got this stuff. And he's a bunch of weed, and it's like absolutely hilarious when Jake Hager comes out like first. That made me die laughing more than anything. Right when I saw the clip of it the first time, I just was dying. And then it became kind of a ripoff of The Hangover, and I honestly loved it. And the ending with Hornswoggle being revealed to be the baby absolutely had me dying. The second it happened, I was I was done. I was like, okay, I got somehow somebody they've got to bounce back and get into actual in ring stuff. 
a little bit later on, John Moxley had a great promo mentioned earlier in the show that Moxley and Renee Young are expecting. And this was one hell of a way to kind of announce that they were doing this, especially considering how like close to the vest Mox is in real life. It was refreshing to hear a promo from him talking in a steady tone as well. Because it wasn't like, oh, hey, he starts talking, then he starts yelling. It was very much a consistent tone and very serious to where he's like, I'm going to beat John Moxley. I beat Kenny Omega. December 2nd, winter is coming. Really good stuff right there. Probably one of my favorite promo guys of 2020 puts together a really good one. Then we get to Orange Cassidy versus Kip Sabian. It's a typical Cassidy match. That's not a bad thing because it's still entertaining. I'm sure in a year or so when we see too much of Cassidy, it's going to get boring. and He needs to change it up a lot. But this was really cool. And the way they did a lot of stuff I haven't seen before. Like, for instance, Orange Cassidy had a diving DDT that could very well be a finisher for him, but they, it wasn't. It wasn't the finish. And it looked brutal. It just was like the diving DDT and landed right on his head. It looked like it absolutely hurt. Then Orange wins with a, a, with the mousetrap. looked way better than he when he did it against Jericho. But then you see Miro blindside Orange like right after the match. He was on commentary, then just ran out and blindsided him, and then runs out of the ring as the best friends try and get in to protect their best friend. Really cool stuff, and just a it was a fine match. Orange Cassidy put together like some really cool spots, and again, it's the whole hands thing and the pockets. It's the typical Cassidy match in terms of color by numbers, especially a good bit of it, but it still worked. It was still fun. Then we get to the Moxley Omega contract signing, which doesn't actually happen, at least the second half of that thing, and then Omega's out there. And he says, hopefully Mox will be ready in two weeks. And kind of weird. He wound up signing the contract. Then couldn't like actually sign the contract because the pin wasn't working. Then he finally got the pin to work, which is just always an interesting thing to see happen live. It's live TV, pal. Kind of weird. But it starts to set the whole tone of everything. And what's to come with the AEW title and the future? Because I think Kenny Omega wins on December 2nd. I think it's going to be an absolutely banger of a match. Then we get to start hour two off with Pac versus the Blade. Crazy thing that we only had in the first hour about 24 minutes of wrestling. Impressive to see a damn near 50-50 split between montages, video packages, backstage segments, and a contract signing that doesn't happen. You get into hour two with a match that was really good and showed that Pac just has not missed a beat. He hadn't wrestled since March 11th. This is back when... Sports started to get shut down all those months ago. And you can just tell from the body language, the way that he was, the way he utilized the five count. Pac was out for blood. And it was complete aggression from start to finish. Very well done. And I just like the fact that you had Pac get the win after the brutalizer and the black arrow combo, which still looks amazing. And it made sense because the blade is not going to be Pac in his first match back. And it's all about bringing back the Death Triangle. Now you get to see the trios back together. I love that. The only real thing that was a knock was it's a production issue. What else is new with them? It was a POV. Basically, you have the camera on the corner on the turnbuckle. I don't know, the turnbuckle. Listen to me. On the post. And all of a sudden, Pac is on the top rope. They cut to that camera for some reason. You just see his ass cheeks. It's like... Why did I need to see a grown man's butt cheeks on the top rope? It was not necessary. But again, Pac gets the win after the black arrow into the brutalizer. And then Pac gets mugged after the match by Kingston. And they start just 
then the butcher and the blade are all getting on top of him and beating him up. And the Death Triangle winds up reuniting right after that. It was so good. And I'm so glad they brought this group back. I knew it was coming. This was inevitable. But the way they did it was perfect. I wish Eddie Kingston just like waited maybe one second before running out of the ring. Because it was it felt like he jumped the gun on it before actually having the chair shot. Th- uh, he turned around and actually hit him with the chair. He kind of raised the chair. And the second he raised the chair, Eddie Kingston ran out. It's like you it kind of spoiled the surprise a little bit. But still good. And I can't wait to see the six-man tags between these guys because you know there's so much juice to rivalry built in already because you have Eddie Kingston's best friend betrayed him. You have the family, the Butcher and the Blade, and their rivalry with Penta and Phoenix. Like You know this six-man tag they're going to have down the road is going to be absolutely amazing. I think Butcher and Blade have improved so much from last year when they debuted, and nobody knew who they were. Nobody knew who Butcher was. People kind of knew who the Blade was, and now that you've got the bunny back, they actually have some juice to it, and the family breaking up, going back to the Death Triangle, that is going to be so much fun to see down the road. They go to the back. Jay Cargill breaks Brandy's arm after stomping on it with a chair wrapped around it. And then you see Vicky Guerrero and Nyla Rose kind of making sure that security can't get to him. So has she joined Vicky Guerrero and Nyla Rose? Could we see Awesome Kong come back as a part of this? I don't know, but I would be 100% interested to see how this thing goes. Because you'd think, you know, you have, let's say, Red Velvet, Brandy Rhodes, and Awesome Kong all be kind of a group against this group. Don't know what's going to happen with that going forward. But it was an interesting thing to have happen backstage, especially after... Moxley got attacked backstage earlier in the show. Don't know who that was. I think it's Hangman, but, you know, I'm not 100% sure. Then we get to the NWA Women's Championship match, Thunder Rosa versus Serena Deeb. Again, this is probably one of those matches where it's it's fine for what it was. It just felt like there was a cluster bleep of a finish with, you know, Reba and Britt Baker interfering. On, against Thunder Rosa. It sets up something for Thunder Rosa, and that's great, because I think AEW needs to establish more rivalries and more feuds into the women's division to infuse that. Instead of like, oh, wait, let's go ahead and throw them all together and give Hikaru Shida a match every two or three weeks, but never show her outside of that, unless she's in the crowd. They need to do more with the women's division. This is a step in the right direction, because I feel like the NWA women's title has taken over a lot of the love from a lot of different people. But still, a really good match start to finish it was fine and it, the, just the fact you had so much going on outside the ring it was a bit of a cluster then we get to the main event team Taz versus Cody Rhodes and Darby Allen first off love Cody's Papa John's t-shirt the fact that it was a reference to Shaq just I didn't know about it till later on I wound up seeing something about it on the internet I'm like oh my god this was a reference to Shaq I love it and hopefully we do get this Cody versus Shaq match down the road Nothing that kind of just made me like wonder and rewind on my DVR was JR saying he he called it my TV instead of me TV, and it was like a boomer. I couldn't stop laughing at that. But, you know, again, this was a pretty standard tag team match, but it was all about kind of like the story that's been going on for months with Team Taz and Darby Allen. Cody Rhodes also involved in it now that he's buddies with Darby and the ending of this match was really good with the drill claw, the top rope and Darby sold it. Like he landed and flew up like a good, like two or three feet. 
and it was just like, oh my god, it made this move, which already looks brutal as it is, look even more like, oh hey, a fatality type move. So damn good, and it makes me really respect Darby a whole hell of a lot more. It was kick-ass. Then Team Taz goes to take Darby some more, beat him up, and then they beat up Cody as well. Then Will Hobbs comes out to save the day. At least it seems like it. And then he swerves, hitting Team Taz, joins Team Taz by hitting Cody Rhodes with the FTW title. And then Taz braids Darby some more and says he sucks as they fade to black and do the whole we're out of time gimmick. Really fun dynamite that was lighter on the action as opposed to normal shows, but it still had some entertaining spots in it as we draw closer to their big show on December 2nd. I don't expect to see a barn burner of a show on dynamite this coming Wednesday, right before Thanksgiving. I think we see a halfway decent show, but it continues to be the final bill towards this big show. Winner is coming, and I'm looking forward to it. Not a huge fan of the name itself, but it is what it is. One more thing before we get out of here. Let's look at the NXT show from this past Wednesday, which, for once, I think was a lot better than AEW. It's usually I try and see like the highlights of NXT, but once I saw that Io Shirai and Rhea Ripley was a banger of a main event, I had to go watch this from t- start to finish. Started off with Leon Ruff versus Johnny Gargano, and they recapped everything that happened last week with Ruff winning the title from Gargano. Then Johnny comes out and says that no one wants to see this, and this is all done so Damien Priest can make him look like a fool. And I'll say this. Ruff and Gargano put together a really solid like five to seven minutes of action. And then you have Priest come up, playing my games, and then giving Ruff a chance to turn the momentum around. And then Gargano hits one final beat. And he's pretty much going to get the win here. You know it is. And then Priest pulls Ruff out of the ring and absolutely decks him. And make sure Ruff retains the belt by disqualification. And that's something I feel like is missing these days. Like changing up the finishes to matches and making them like slightly different as opposed to what we've seen in the past. This was perfect. This was the way you need to get it done. This is the way I love seeing angles go down. It was perfect. And I wish they did that more. Because it make if you have it makes sense where you you know you're attacking somebody to cause disqualification so this guy doesn't win the title back, that is a perfect way to do it. And it really builds up later on in the show. But I love the way they did that. The next match is a blindfold match between Cameron Grimes and Dexter Loomis. And again, Grimes and Loomis are really great characters. And I feel like Grimes just continues to be like a great guy to watch because he just does stuff you just don't expect. And within seconds, he made this blindfold match a lot better because he wound up like like flying like immediately after he put the blindfold on, flew, thought he had hit Loomis, didn't. The Grimes beats up the ref and doesn't know until the blindfold comes off. Loomis countered everything with a burlap sack on his head, which was really rad and made you it made you kind of realize, hey, like he can actually see inside that burlap sack, but it was absolutely funny. And another thing I love is like Wade Barrett is great at commentary. It's something I I wasn't necessarily a fan of the fact that Marwanel left and then you have kind of Wade Barrett come back. But he's done a great job in this role as a commentator. And this was one of those things you just love to see. And something you just you won't notice right away unless you pay attention. But in commentary, he's saying, you know, don't look directly in Loomis's eyes because they're so cold and calculated, you're gonna get like lost in them. Then you get 
again, love this with like Wade Barrett covering his eyes on commentary as like Loomis is looking in his general direction. So it's really, I absolutely love that. It was just something, it's the little things that always make me like pop. And this was one of those. And then Grimes gets away and the match just ends. And like, there's no conclusion for the rest of the show. Then we go to the back and Ringle, Regal is chastising Priest for interfering in the title match. And then Leon Ruff shows up and asks if he's a joke to him. And then he absolutely slaps Priest. And this really is great to see the plucky underdog realize, hey, people think I'm a fluke. Let me go prove them wrong and deck the biggest guy in the room. And then you come back for break and they promote the women's war games match between Team Shotzi Blackheart and Team Candice LeRae. By the way, that I don't know what it was, but that promo, that video package, had me feeling some kind of way. I don't know what exactly it was, but it was absolutely perfect. Then we get to the, the actual women's tag team match, the first of two, actually. Indy Hartwell and Candice LeRae versus Casey Catanzaro and Caden Carter. This was a tag team squash. Indy Hartwell, Candice LeRae looked strong. And it was really great. It was really putting over the new pairing that was revealed and also hype up the upcoming War Games match. It made sense. Then we get to Kushida versus Arturo Ruras. Remember from Raw Underground? This was a really awesome match that I think people aren't necessarily going to look at quite as much. It was technical. And it showcased both these guys, like MMA background. Some of you just don't quite realize until you actually do a little research and it showed that WWE guys did their research. This wasn't like an actual work in terms of like, oh wait, Kushida did MMA. No, he actually did MMA and he's undefeated in mixed martial arts contests in ZST and then also Ruas is a undefeated freestyle wrestler for a lot of the years and he's, it's just, you have these two guys actually square off and you sell that these guys are actually really good in the ring it was a fun back and forth. They love technical wrestling, and they absolutely did a great job selling everything. It felt hard-hitting as hell. And again, I think that's what NXT is. It's a hard-hitting, kind of like a bunch of different styles facing off. And this was a really good one. The former time splitter wins with a unique knee hold that turns into a bridge for the pin and the win, which blew me away. I was like, wait a minute. He, I, mean, I thought it was going to be a submission win. But no, he... He goes into a bridge and gets him to gets the pinfall. That was a shocker. It was short, but it was really good and crisp between the two, and that was something that I feel like is missing in pro wrestling in 2020. Then we get to the women's tag team match, the second one, to start off hour two with Ember Moon and Tony Storm versus Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez. And Ember Moon is probably going to be the most over person on NXT in the women's roster. And she just has and it's perfect. I love what they did with this solid storytelling with Raquel establishing dominance on Storm very early. Moon comes out like a house of fire, but Gonzalez puts it out real quick with a big boot that was sold like a gunshot outside the ring. They went to break from there. Storm shifted the momentum back in their favor. It looks like a secure win before Gonzalez breaks up the fall. It was a really cool double down sequence between Kai and Storm. And it was just like, boom. And it just became a hard, they just, just start knocking the tar out of each other. And eventually Storm wins with the inside cradle. And then we get to see more of the selling of what's going to happen at War Games because Lil Ray and Hartwell mug Moon and Storm after the match. Which, by the way, when you hear Amber Moon and Tony Storm, makes you, and especially Moon and Storm, makes you think of a really like off brand, 
like superhero tag team. I don't know why I think of that, but it really works. I'm going to see how Team Blackheart looks whenever they're finalized. Because it looks like Team LeRae is going to be finalized with LeRae, Kai, Gonzalez, and Hartwell. Meanwhile, obviously now you got Ember Moon, Tony Storm, and Shotzi Blackheart. Who's going to fill up that fourth and final spot? We'll see. Then we get to Timothy, Timothy Thatcher versus August Gray, a absolute hard-hitting contest, selling story that Gray was a former student in the Thatch school. So damn good. Really cool sequence with Thatcher getting a pin. But after Gray kicks out, he locks in a submission. Just really, like again, a lot like Ishida versus Arturo Ruras. This was, without a doubt, a technical mastery match. And this was just so much fun to see them just knock the tar out of each other. And the Gray tried to finish it off, but Thatcher obliterated him with a kick, the underhook suplex, and they hit the neck crank for the win. And it was like immediate. As soon as he put in the neck crank, the match was over. It was like the torture rack back in the day, and it absolutely kicked ass. After the match, Ciampa comes out to stop Thatcher from further adding insult to injury. Thatcher wants no part of this. And again, it's the first step towards Ciampa having a feud to really start fixing the locker room issues, and really establishing himself as the, I'd say, the Undertaker, to a certain extent, of the NXT locker room. Then Damius Priest comes out for a match. It never happens because Gargano starts a big brawl after what happened at the start of the show. Ruff comes out and shows what he's made of and stands tall before Gargano and Priest set their sides on the North American champion briefly, and then Ruff gets to the hell out of Dodge. Love what they're doing with Ruff again. And the fact that they're establishing this as an ongoing story throughout the two hours, that's something I feel like is missing a lot in WWE. Is like they need to have like a recurring like storyline that lasts throughout the entire show, but it keeps going. And this is something I'd love to see be a match at NXT TakeOver War Games in a couple weeks. Have this be a triple threat match for the North American title. That way there must be a winner. And I'm intrigued to see how that goes. Does Leanne Ruff retain? Does Priest win? Does Gargano win? There's a lot of questions, and they're doing a great job with this. And it makes him, in terms of Ruff, no longer look like a comedy act. He wants to be taken seriously, and they are starting to really build towards him being taken seriously. Then we get to the main event of the night, NXT Women's Champion Io Shirai versus Rhea Ripley. And again, I've mentioned it before with AEW and a lot of other different promotions. Tale of Tape needs to be used a lot more, especially for title fights. I feel like NXT should be stuff main roster does in terms of title matches. The tail of the tape. The intangibles was a cool little thing that I enjoyed because it's just something different. Yeah, you can wind up saying, like, like for instance, I was watching MLW Wednesday night as well. And MLW has, like, their, their Mars. It's like a statistician. They have their stats and facts about, like, how many times this guy kicks out a move, like how many times so-and-so kicks out of this, that, and the other. That is awesome. Give me more of that. Just inject it into my veins and give me more of that versus, you know, I'm just sitting here, thumb up my butt, butt, and I'm like, give me that kind of stuff versus, you know, oh, hey, just these two squaring off. Give me that. And it was really cool to see that. And I also think the main roster needs to do something like they do in NXT during title matches where they have the lights go down during the intros. It just makes it seem like a big fight feel. And I wish they did that more, especially during pay-per-views. Like WWE should do that during pay-per-views at all times for title matches for the, for the main event. It should always have that because it makes that match mean a hundred times more. It's a title match, but now, you know, Oh wait, like ish is getting real. 
And it was a banger of a match. Ripley establishing early. They had an awkward inverted Alabama slam that looked like it hurt Ripley as well as Shirai. And then Shirai really took over about the 10-minute mark. And these two just beat the tar out of each other for several minutes. And Ripley tried to hit the riptide for the finish but couldn't get it done. Shirai countered it twice. And Shirai retains after the moonsault in an incredible match. Probably my match of the week without question, without doubt. And probably women's match of the year for me. This was so cool in the way they sent it off, both of them showing respect to each other. And now is Rhea Ripley going to Raw? That's the next question. And right after that match, they just quickly go into Finn Balor comes out, cuts a promo to end the show, announcing his return. And then out comes Pat McAfee and his crew saying, hey, you know, like we took out all these guys. We're going to take you out too unless you want to, if you don't want to play ball. But turns out Undisputed Era comes back. It's a full-blown brawl. McAfee gets bicycle kicked into oblivion. And then they pull the ECW move. They're out of time, and they go ahead and end the show. And that was a perfect way to end it on a cliffhanger. And then you see the network exclusive. Pat McAfee is for the brand. I don't know if they've actually named the stable yet. Against the Undisputed Era, War Games, it is going to happen. It's going to be so damn lit. December 6th. Can't wait for that. It's so good to see they're actually putting together like two really good survive uh, war games matches. Listen to me, I'm saying Survivor Series. That was Sunday. This will be a couple Sundays down the road. So give me that more than anything. Is a war games NXT is going to be have a, a great card right now, and I love the fact we're actually going to see Pat McAfee inside war games. The heel getting his come up. It's more likely than not, but it's gonna be so damn fun to watch from start to finish. That's going to about do it for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Make sure you leave us a five-star review. Six stars if you're in the Tokyo Dome for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 103.7 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. You can check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 103.7thegame.com, the free mobile app, and so many other ways. I think the only way you can't listen to us is through the FM dial, and I think on Spotify as well, at least for right now. When we get on Spotify, we will let you know. Because trust me, we want to make sure you listen to us any way, anytime, anywhere, any place. Because trust me, pro wrestling is what matters most in this world, at least to me. So hopefully you enjoyed this week's podcast. We'll be back with you next Monday. 